Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Have you ever looked back in time and considered how certain defining moments have shaped your life and future? Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, looks at the importance of defining moments and how we can recognize what God is saying through them. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, please take them and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As we talk about a defining focus today in our Defining Moments series, we've had a, a number of messages in our Defining Moments series. And let me just kind of rehash what some of that's all about. The Refining Moments series is about moments in our lives where we realize God has spoken, God has done something in our lives are changed after that moment, where we live in a different way. After that encounter we had with God, where he spoke something, he did something, he said something. For many of us, obviously, that's salvation, the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. For others, it's a certain calling in our life, a calling where the Lord has called us to something, to do something, to be a part of an organization, or to be part of a movement of some kind. Sometimes it's just God telling us, I want you to obey me in this particular area of your life or to leave something behind that has been dragging you down. But defining moments, you know, here's what I found. I find that we have thousands of experiences in life but only a few defining moments. And I hope that you think about the defining moments in your life where you have encountered God in powerful ways. Today, defining focus. Would you stand with me as we read this passage today? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 beginning in verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 11. Now, verse 11 picks up in a very important letter of the New Testament where Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And the first 10 verses really are about the return of the Lord. And so verse 11 picks up with that thought package before it moves into verse 12, but it kind of ties it all together here. And here's what it says in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you were also doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. You find this several times in the Bible, not only how we respond to each other in the community of faith, but also to everyone. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. Then verse 21, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. There's a lot of instruction in that passage, and it's all applicable to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today, let this text, let this passage speak loudly to us. Father, help us to see how it fits us here and now, where we live, where we are. And as we open our eyes to see what's going on around us, help us to know how we are to be obedient to you as people who follow you by faith in changing the world around us. Father, thank you for how you've worked in the past, how you're working now, how you will in the future. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated if you would. I suspect this always happens to people at various times in their lives, but more than 30 years ago I had 
an incredible opportunity to do something and a desire to do something way beyond what I had imagined. It was an opportunity to be a part of a much larger organization. And uh, during those years, I was seeing needs around me that I couldn't see how they were being met by the church and the pastor that I was involved with at the time. And so I, I was looking for a way to impact the world. I was looking for a way to help people to change lives. And I really looked beyond what was in front of me. I tried to see this global picture and tried to find a way, how do I get connected with this global life-changing kind of vision when I had only a responsibility that God had placed just in front of me. And in reality, God had to bring me to the place of saying, wherever I put you is a world-changing position. Wherever I've placed you, whatever gifts I've given you, that's what I want you to use to change people's lives all around you and around the world. And it really came to be a defining moment for me, a defining focus that's really guided me for more than 30 years now. And I realized it doesn't take a big organization to change the world. It doesn't take a massive government change to change the world. But what will change the world is when people of God follow the God who is in control. And when they follow him, he multiplies everything they do to transform lives around them. And that's what I want to talk to you about today just a little bit. How do we focus our lives to be what we ought to be in our nation at this time, in our community at this time, in our family, our city at this time? How do we be the church God called us to be? Uh, a pastor from England whose name is uh, Jay John has a YouTube video out where he spoke a little bit about the meaning and the purpose of the church, and it's kind of gone viral in a sense. Millions of people have watched this video. It's a very encouraging video. I'm gonna to try to reproduce some of the words of that. And he tells the story of being on an airplane when a woman asked him, what do you do? You know, that's one of the conversation pieces we have when we talk to strangers. We ask them what they do, and then they ask us what we do. And he always hesitated to say, I'm a pastor. Because I can tell this from personal experience, when I say that I'm a pastor, it usually shuts the conversation down, right? I don't know what they think I'm going to do. I don't know if they think I'm going to preach to them one-on-one -on, -one on the airplane or something like that. I'm not really sure, but they don't like to hear that I'm a pastor. And he had that same experience. So he didn't really want to tell the woman what he did because of that. So he said, oh, ma'am, I'm a part of a huge organization that brings change in the world. She said, oh, really? And he said, yes, I'm, I'm part of a global enterprise with Atlas in every nation of the world. We have hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We have feeding programs and educational endeavors. And she goes, oh, wow. And he went on and said, we have all sorts of <clears throat> justice and recovery kinds of things. Basically, we look after people from birth to death and major in the area of behavior modification. We change lives. <laughs> the lady was astounded. She said, well, what's it called? He said, it's called the Church of Jesus Christ. And in reality, that may be an interesting and humorous conversation, but he is exactly right. The church of Jesus Christ is bigger than anything you and I can possibly even imagine. We can't fathom, we can't get a calculator and add up all the representatives of the church of Jesus Christ on the planet. But if we believe God is in control, the way to change the world is through the church of Jesus Christ and through him leading the way. And that's what Paul is writing about in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11 to a group of people that needed to hear it. And by the way, one of the principles that came out of my own experience 
And one that I want to share with you today is this principle, pursue what is before you and you will influence what is beyond you. And I believe that's true. Pursue what God has placed in front of you. Pursue what God has allowed you to see in the position that you're in, wherever that is and whatever that is. And God will use that, may even multiply that to impact lives way beyond what you could possibly have imagined when you began doing what God called you to do. You know, there's a verse in the scripture that I absolutely love. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and you hear it from time to time. But I want you to put it into your life for just a few moments and imagine what would happen if you would trust God for that verse in your life today. Here's what it says. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. In other words, according to the Holy Spirit's power in your own life, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a great passage. That tells us that we can't even imagine how God wants to use our influence in the world that we live in. And it also tells us that it's God that makes the difference, not our aspirations, not some organizations, not the government, not some church organization, but it's us working side by side with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he's giving them some incredible insights that I think will help us today. By the way, one of the questions that I want to answer today and want you to answer for your own life is this question. How do we live in today's America in such a way as to change her for the better? I'm a firm believer that we've been blessed to be in America, but I'm also a firm believer that there's more to come. There's another chapter. It needs to be another chapter. It must be another chapter of how we interact with people and with each other in America. As a matter of fact, when I was looking over the last a few weeks thinking about this day and this celebration that'll happen tomorrow, thinking about what I would say to you, I began to realize that in my lifetime, I've seen at least three versions of America and three eras of people's mindsets uh, in the nation and how they think in general. I can remember when I was growing up, I felt like we were in an era of responsibility. And some people that are what are called old-timers, people that have been around a long time might say, all right, I remember that era of responsibility, that era where the big question was not, what will everything, what will everyone do for you, but what will you do for everyone else? I think it was John F. Kennedy that says, ask not what your country will do for you, but what you will do for your country. It's a great, great question to ask. And, and it mirrored that era of responsibility. During that era, it was a very important thing for people to, to go into military service. It was an important thing for them to do to, to serve the nation and maybe to serve other nations that were in danger. And that's just part of what you did. I remember growing up and my father talked about being in the Navy all the time. And I wanted to be in the armed forces. And I was actually disappointed when my hearing loss kept me from being in the armed forces. It was an age of responsibility, an era of responsibility. But as I grew older, I realized that things were changing, and I think all of us do look back and say things did change. The 70s, the 80s, the 90s, I would call the era of rights. We wanted to know what our country could do for us, what others could do for us. We wanted to know what rights did we have. 
I mean, if you really began to think about it, the sexual revolution was taking place in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and, and really Roe v. Wade, which we talked a bit about last week, was actually enacted to take care of those that did not want to be responsible for what was taking place as a result of sexual freedom. And that really is what began that. So it was an age of looking for rights. How can I make sure that everything serves what I want to do? And then I think in the last 20 years, we've moved into a very, very different era. I would call the last 20 years to be an era of redefinition and reinvention. We're redefining terms. We're reinventing everything. And sometimes not always for the better. We're even reinventing what is a man and what is a woman. We're reinventing gender gender roles. We're reinventing everything, trying to, to find some way to satisfy everyone. And my question for us today is, how do we live in a nation like that? Because how we lived in America 50 years ago is a little bit different from how we live in America today. How do we interact? How do we deal with things like that in our nation today as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, following the same God who worked in powerful ways hundreds and thousands of years ago? How do we do that today? And I find no better admonition than this text we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Go back to that text for just a moment. I want you to look at this with me for a moment. And understand the background. In that day and time, those in the church were citizens of God and of the Roman Empire. Not America, but the Roman Empire. These people had a freedom to worship, but were also told to be tolerant of every other belief. Rome was a polytheistic nation. It was also a very immoral nation. All kinds of immorality took place and were accepted in culture. But even though Christianity was accepted in a big way, within 15 years of the writing of this letter, the tolerance for both Jews and Christians diminished. And Nero began to falsely accuse the Christians of burning down the city of Rome, which historians say he actually did so that he could rebuild Rome and his palaces. And so the end result of that was Christians began to be persecuted. We find this letter written during that age of persecution. And eventually, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed as a result of all those kinds of things that were happening. So Paul is writing a letter to this church in that era of great persecution, great difficulty, when the the nation itself did not embrace their values. And he's answering questions, how then do we live? How then do we hold our values, our morals? How do we worship our God? And all the admonitions I read to you a few moments ago reflect all of that. Here's how to live till Jesus comes back, Paul says. I find it very applicable for us today. Let me break it down for you today. Three, th- three key things that we need to be looking at today. And it's more important than it's ever been for us to live this out. First of all, Paul talks about encouragement. Encourage the people around you. This whole package, this whole series of verses begins with verse 11 as it concludes the previous verses and starts the next one, therefore encourage one another. And following that is a list of things to actually do. This is as relevant as you and I can possibly imagine, things that we are supposed to do to encourage and to call out to people who need encouragement. Now I have to tell you today, people need encouragement today. I have to tell you, you need encouragement today. We're living in an era of more confusion and and more discouragement, more depression than than I can possibly even remember over the last 50 or 60 years. It's really amazing how many people are giving up on life. 
or just giving in to the temptations of life. So encouragement is incredibly important just as it was then. It is especially important now. You know, the word encouragement means to call out to from alongside. That's what the word actually means in the original language. If I were to define this word in, in human terms, I would point you to the Boston Marathon and the Heartbreak Hill, which is at mile 20. Heartbreak Hill is an incline at the end of 20 miles when they, they're climbing that hill in Boston and they've already run that many miles and they just have about six more to go, but it's really literally a heartbreak moment because they either pursue it to the top and get over the top and usually finish well after that or they give up on Heartbreak Hill. People all over the world will fly to Boston, not to run the Boston Marathon, but to go to Heartbreak Hill and call out encouragement to people trying to make it up on top of that hill. They call out to them while alongside them. Now that's my part of the marathon. I'm not gonna run a marathon, but I'll call out to somebody that is. And when they're on Heartbreak Hill, I wanna say, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. I'll be a cheerleader for them. But that word literally means to call out to from alongside. Paul said the church of Jesus Christ needs to know how to encourage people that are hurting. And then he gives seven very clear practical applications. I want you to keep your Bible open to verses 12 through 15. And I'm gonna read these and show these seven practical applications for you today. Seven ways to encourage people. And these encouragements are not just for the church, not just for the community of faith, but we, the community of faith, are to encourage all those around us to call out from alongside them as we go through life. First of all, love your leaders. It begins with verse 12, love your leaders. It says to appreciate and esteem your spiritual leaders, those that labor among you. And the purpose for that is for the church to be encouraged, the leaders must be encouraged. And so there's that simple admonition during a very persecution-oriented era, encourage your leaders. Secondly, live in peace, verse 13. Some of us need to hear this. We live combative lives. We're not peacemakers. We're not peacekeepers. But the Bible says that we're to live in peace with all people. That's verse 13. The third one is admonish the disorderly. It is important to confront those who are irresponsible, those who are unruly. That's in verse 14. Admonish the disorderly. Number four is to reach out to the fearful. Those who are in panic, those who are fearful, those who don't know what the next step will be in life and when the next foot will fall, those who are fearful of tomorrow's news, reach out to them. The fifth admonition is to help the weak. It literally means to grab and lift them up and hold them while they are weak. Provide whatever they need in order for them to be strengthened and encouraged. Number six is a huge one. It says, be patient with all. It's an attitude, attitude command. I don't believe we live in the age of patience, do you? I believe we live in the age of panic. We live in the age of, of hurry it up. But we're supposed to be patient with all. And then number seven, pursue good for all. That's in verse 15. Not only do we pursue the good that we think is good for us and the church of Jesus, but we are to pursue good for all mankind. That's a huge order that Paul gives the church at Thessalonica. When you think about these seven ways of encouragement, ask yourself the question, can I put these into practice in my life? Can I look around me at all the needs and become the kind of citizen of heaven while being a citizen of our country that reflects what God says I'm supposed to reflect in these words of encouragement. 
There will always be the poor. There will always be the hurting people. The disorderly will still be around in a hundred years, just like they are now. But early Christians didn't look to Caesar or Rome to take care of people. It was quite the opposite. The nation actually looked to the church because the church was willing to radically serve the culture around them. The New Testament church was known for doing what nobody else would do. Last week I talked to you about the million hands of culture that try to shape the way we think. I'm going to talk to you today about the million hands of the church that really meet the needs of the culture. And I want you to envision that with me if you would. There are hundreds of thousands of evangelical churches in America. You can expand that wider and wider depending on what groups you include. But there are hundreds of thousands of organizations just like this. Millions and millions of born-again believers. Millions and millions of hands that can reach out and encourage and pick up and give what's necessary, the pat on the back that's necessary, the word of encouragement that's necessary. Live life so that we can encourage those around us. This passage is teaching us. The book of Hebrews, there's a great verse that talks about the church and it talks about what we've been discussing. In chapter 10, verse 23, it begins like this. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, as the end times come upon us. Learn to gather together. I would break that down into three phrases. Stay strong, stay active, stay together. Let me tell you, that happens when the church of Jesus learns to stay strong, learns to stay active, learns to stay together. We move together with a powerful alignment. And that alignment is based on what God calls us to do as the people of God. And it really has ripple effects in changing lives. Those of you that are part of this city, Cross City Church, you understand how God has worked powerfully for us to be able to impact people's lives. And I'm very thankful for how he's done that. I'll share some stories about that in just a few moments. But I wonder if we would ask ourselves the question, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, how will different needs arise and how will the church step up to meet those needs? It's one thing to celebrate the protection of human lives of unborn children. It's another thing to step up and say, to those who may have unplanned pregnancies, who may otherwise be abortion-minded, how will I meet these needs? How will I deal with these challenges? So I asked a few questions about that. How will we respond? Let me give you some data to let you know this is our DNA. Research already shows that adoption rates among Christians are twice that of non-Christians in the USA. So think about that for just a moment. Those who are professing Christians, active in local churches, adopt at twice the rate as other adults in America. It's because we're more than just pro-life for the unborn. It's because we're pro-whole life. It's because we're willing to step up and change really the future of our family by adopting someone that's in need of adoption. That's what I would call a defining moment, would it not be? When you make the decision to do that or to foster, Christians are twice as likely as others to do that in America. Did you know that Christians give money at twice the rate other people give for benevolent causes, for those that are hungry, those that are hurting. Christians give twice as much than others. In the same way, Christians who volunteer to help in their community do so at greater rates than others. More than 10 years ago, we started an organization called Six Stones, and I vividly remember a conversation with a government leader 
who said one of the big problems in our culture is that there are homes in our cities that are beyond normal repair. They're below code. We're going to find them, and they may not be able to have the money to fix the homes. They may be elderly. They may just be poor, don't have money. Uh, there may be a number of causes, but we can't fix these problems. And as a result, it's, it's a difficult situation. And we just ask the question, how can our church help bless our community? And here's what this government leader said to me. He said, we do have enough money to be able to purchase materials for these homes that are in need of repair, but we can't pay for the labor, and we don't know how to find volunteers. And I thought, I bet I can find some volunteers. Before long, this church stepped up, six stones was started, and now, in the last 10 years, we've rebuilt or repaired 800 homes in 10 years. I think that's an incredible thing. It's a picture of the church being active. It's a picture of a church saying there's a need out there, and so we can't depend on someone else doing that, but that's our neighbor, that's our friend, that's someone that knows them, and we're gonna step up and do all that we can, and that's what the church is known for. That's what the church should be known for. And these days ahead, I see the need of that growing and growing and growing, but I also see the response of that growing because we're wired to do this. We're wired to follow the compassion of Jesus, to, to look at all the things that he taught us and the way he lived. We're wired to be encouragers to all those around us. So here's some questions. Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you acting on the needs around you? Are you encouraging those that are hurting? That's the calling we have in life. And first of all, encourage the people around you. The second principle in these verses is equally important. Depend on the one above you. Notice what it says in verses 16 through 20. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. 29 words in five verses. Very short, very to the point. But it all points to one thing. You've got to depend on God to do the things that God is calling you to do. Listen to this quote. For me to give, for me to rejoice, for me to pray and give thanks in everything, I must believe that God will work every circumstance in my life for good. It takes faith to do those things. I mean, you can't rejoice and give thanks in everything unless you believe God is gonna bring something good out of it. You can't pray without ceasing unless it's just part of what your dependence is. You're depending on God for every little thing in life and so you're praying without ceasing. Uh, you can't keep from despising prophetic utterances unless you believe that if God speaks, then it'll be the right thing to do. And so you're going to listen to that. You don't want to grieve his spirit. All that says we've got to depend on God more than we ever have before. Let me just tell you, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as a citizen of America, I need to be walking by faith in how I live my citizenship out and how I have responsibility to reflect the gospel of Jesus and the love of God with the people that are all around me, not only in the way of encouraging them, but depending on God to help me with that, to be led of the Spirit. Every significant work God has done beginning in our church and beyond our church, and he has done many things, has happened through a spiritual prompting. A spiritual prompting. Today we have a Lionheart Academy here. 
one of my friends and uh, a man that served in this church staff years ago, Stan Dobbs, was in a hospital bed in Houston going through transfusions for his cancer and it didn't have a good prognosis. But Stan had been involved in many ministries and he'd seen God speak to him and lead him in great ways. And while he was on that hospital bed, not knowing what his future was, he got the vision for Lionheart Academy. And the vision for Lionheart Academy was this, that we would reach a whole generation of children that only secular organizations were attempting to reach. And that we'd help them have incredible childcare, incredible early education at a high, high level, but also with the gospel of Jesus Christ alongside that. Just a few years ago, he started Lionheart Academy, and now I think there are up to 21 different academies and 21 different churches, and it won't surprise me at all if he has hundreds and hundreds of those in the days ahead. And how did all that begin? By a spiritual prompting on a hospital bed when he didn't know his future. He acted on that, and God has done the rest. Listen, that's why the church needs to be really alert to the things the Spirit is leading us to do as individuals and as a church, as a whole, as we move into a new era. What I consider a new era of the church in America, it's incredibly important that we depend on the one above us. And then finally, we need to discern the issues before you. These last two verses, again, are brief, but notice what he says there. He says, examine, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, some of what he says here is attached to that previous verse, which says, don't despise prophetic utterances. In other words, be discerning about what you listen to when someone says, the Lord has told me that. But I consider that to be good common sense as well. When someone says, God has said something to me about you, uh, you need to use good common sense. You need to consider it with discernment. But he's also speaking in a general sense. He's doing this all the way through the text. This is going to affect how you look at issues in your culture as well. It's even going to help us answer the question, how do Christians deal with the issues in our culture? How do we help the poor and hurting? How do we meet the needs of the aged and sick? What about abortion? We've posed that already today. What about transgenderism? The rise of LGBTQ? What about the border? Here it is in the simplest form. From my perspective, we become a nation that merely talks and votes. We do not largely see and act on needs in front of us as we should. But the scripture is going to encourage us to deal with what's in front of us, not just what's on the other side of the continent. We're so concerned about something we can't affect, and we're so ignorant about the things that are right here before our very eyes. We can make a difference with those right here. God uses that in a concentric circle effect of influence if he'll use us, if we'll let him. So how do these admonitions respond and how we respond to them. First of all, let me say three things, these three things about these three admonitions. I'm just going to break them down and uh, use everyday language. First of all, filter everything through scriptural truth. Let me say of all the people in the world to be confused, Christians should be the last ones confused. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, if we know who God is, then we know where truth comes from. And if we know where truth comes from, we know what truth is. And it's really important for us to filter everything that we hear, everything we see, everything that comes across our path with scriptural truth. It literally says to weigh everything carefully. Truth is not changing. Truth is not relative. It's not murky. It doesn't contradict itself. 
You can know the truth. It's become very popular today for people to say they're deconstructing their faith, which is another way of saying, I don't like everything that I've been told that I should believe. I don't like everything the Bible says, and so I'm going to deconstruct the faith, and I'm going to rebuild it the way I want to rebuild it. And it can only happen in an era where people are rejecting the biblical and traditional morals of the Bible. Tony Evans said it really well. He said, people don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them and their own perspectives. But the Bible is our truth. Filter everything from scriptural truth. The second admonition that those verses hold is this one about what is good. Embrace and protect what is good. Do you see the verse again? He said, hold fast to that which is good. Stand by good. Celebrate good. Don't be ashamed of good. Keep what is good from being threatened. It's true. Wherever you are a citizen, embrace the good. Here's what I know. I know in our culture today, when some people stand up for good, they stand up all by themselves. And yet Paul is saying, hold fast to that what is good. Come alongside those who want good for culture and for society. What's good for all is worthy to be stood up for. The third admonition is move away from all forms of evil. He says abstain from every form of evil. That's the actual translation. Now that's kind of tricky in an unchristian world, unchristian culture. But here's what's true. Bad company still corrupts good morals. It's incredibly important for us to be discerning. And it corrupts good morals by practicing and excusing and rationalizing evil. And eventually we just give up and say, okay, I guess it's all right. It's not so bad when the Bible says it's evil. It's still important to refrain from every form of what God says is evil. So what you see and what you listen to, what you tolerate in your life, what you think about, what you defend, what you lobby for, all those things are covered under this blanket umbrella. Embrace what is good and abstain from what is evil. Now, the church should never be a political machine, but we do have to represent truth when our nation and our community makes decisions because we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors of the Word of God. And if we think truth is best, best not only for us, but God's best for people everywhere, why would we be silent? when it counts. And beyond that, making decisions and voting is not all we're called to. We're called to see the needs around us and act in the spirit of Christ. And by the way, we're the only people group that I know of that will actually do that. He will say, we believe in meeting needs. We believe in the power of Christ and his provision. We believe we are to help meet those needs. All the way back in 1 John. John, the disciple of love, gives this advice to the church. I just love what it says. It says, but whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then the practical application is so good. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just talk about it. Don't try to get somebody else to meet the need. You love by your actions and by your truth. And when one believer does this, and acts upon this passage, and loves indeed in truth, then another, and then another. When a church makes a big commitment to those in need, and then another, and then another, God raises up still more 
of this group and that group, and before long, all are acting in encouraging ways, all depending on God, all are discerning the issues and being on the right side of God's truth, which is the only place we can be, and that's when we're sought and light. That's when the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to be very evident. These people are not here for themselves. They're here for the living God, and they're here to represent him to us. That's our calling. In early Rome, you may not know this fact, but in early Rome, Christians made up less than 1% of the population, yet they had a profound impact on the culture. By 100 AD, they could only count 7,000 Christians in the, whole, uh, in the whole of civilization. That's not very many Christians. 7,000, that's it. And yet, because Christians lived in such a winsome, loving, authentic way, they had a profound impact on the culture. They did things that others wouldn't do. They took care of those that had gone down in a plague and those who were sick were left by their own family members and Christians would come back and take care of them. They lived in such a way where Christ's teachings were exemplified. It became acceptable and even desirable to be a Christian because of that winsome way of life. By 350 AD, just 250 years later, there were over 30 million followers of Christ with huge influence in the world. Why? Because it's a superior way to live, mirroring and following the life of Jesus Christ. That's why. Because there's power in that kind of living. There's power in that kind of love. There's power in those kinds of actions that meet needs that are right in front of us for the cause of Christ, for the gospel of Christ. And when I read that kind of thing, I say, we should do this again. We should live this out. We should go out and live it out locally and let it impact the world globally. Now, you may be listening to me today and saying, you know, I'm glad you have great optimism. I don't share your optimism. And let me just say this to you. You don't see what God is doing in many parts of the world. But if you were able to see it, you would share my optimism. God is still at work. He's still the same God. He still works the same way. Human nature hasn't changed, and he's still able to meet the needs of those around us. If we will just let him work through us, be an encourager, depend on the God of the universe, and then you reach out, discern the things around you, and act as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of dismissal. I have a couple of invitations for you today. And one of those invitations is to come to Christ if you haven't already. If you haven't seen and realized what Jesus did on the cross for you, and maybe you've never had a moment in your life where you said, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to have forgiveness that God promises through Christ. Then we can talk to you about that. We can have a conversation with you. You can put your faith in Christ today. And I would encourage you to do that today. Not later, not tomorrow, not next week, now. We have decision stations that are set up for those kinds of conversations. Please stop by. Talk to somebody. Say, I, I'm having questions about my faith in Jesus today. So stop by and talk to them about anything, but certainly about that. The second invitation is, I would love to meet you if you're a guest. And we have a guest reception center that's just outside our center exit doors and across the hallway. Take a moment to drop in. Let me say hello to you. Let me welcome you to our services today at the Cross City Church. Would you stand with me as we have this closing word of prayer? Father, today I am so thankful 
for all the many things we've talked about today. Thankful to live in this country. Thankful to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Father, I'm thankful for the faith that has been true through the ages and for the remembrance that you never change. You're just as powerful today as you always have been. Father, I want to thank you today that you call us to do something in our nation at this time. You call us to be active. You call us to be involved, to encourage, to build up people, to meet needs. And Lord, help us do that together. Father, I ask you today to give us a spirit of optimism and trust as well as gratitude. And then, Lord, help us to do something about the things we're concerned about. So today, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and to that. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.